Hey guys, welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven. That is my book-loving wife, Liberty. We're a married couple with different interests, and we try to bring each other around to our side with the latest news in both books and sports. And today is everybody's favorite, books, 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 books. You're so weird. Yeah. It is everyone's favorite day because we're finally talking about books. Yep. And not sports things that make no sense whatsoever. (laughs) Just not to you, it seems. In last week's episode, I mentioned that The Strand basically put out a call to action, a call for help, saying that the bookstore wasn't doing well and that they needed people to buy from them so they can stay afloat in the time of COVID. Well, another famous bookstore is also calling for help. This week, Paris's Shakespeare and Company have sent out an email to its customers asking for their support. Sales at the bookstore have been down 80% since March. And like we said last time, tourism is their main revenue source. People coming into Paris and specifically going to this bookshop on purpose. And not petting their cat. Look, they have signs. They have a cat. One of them got chosen to be ignored. One of them did not. And that's all I'm saying about that. Yep, the cat loved me. That's all I'm going to say about that. Well, you just gave away which one's which. Yep. But they're asking for support via online sales because Paris has just gone into yet another four-week minimum lockdown. So even if you could get there, they're not going to be open for business. It's just going to be online orders only. Yeah. And this iteration of the Shakespeare and Company bookstore was originally opened in 1951. The original one opened at a different location in 1919 in Paris. So the Shakespeare Company as a whole has existed since 1919. And the original location was visited by authors like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. And if that's not enough to get someone who loves books to buy something from Shakespeare and Company, I don't know what is. And if that doesn't work for you, they have a lovely cafe where you can pick up some food and coffee and read your book. Right there on the river. In December, because that's not happening now. Yeah. With their whole lockdown situation. So they desperately, desperately, desperately need you to buy books or online. gift cards, at yeah. least online. Mm-hmm. I really liked this bookstore when we were there. I really enjoyed browsing, but I also liked how everything was organized, if that makes any sense. It was organized in a very quirky way in my mind like it was just like they were organized in sections but the sections were literally just in random places on bookshelves like i think if you're used to shopping at like secondhand stores this isn't going to be weird for you going to shakespeare and company but i feel like if you're used to like a barnes and noble style of bookshop it's very different and like It's a small location, so, like, I can understand that they can't be open right now. Even if there wasn't a lockdown, probably they'd have trouble being open for more than one or two people at a time just because it's such a packed space. Like, I specifically remember a book got dropped on me by a bookseller on accident because there's just no room, and he dropped a book straight onto me. Right. So... I liked it when we were there. It's obviously a book lover hotspot. Yeah. And I feel like if you can support them, that you should. Like I said, last week, The Strand put out this call to action. And book lovers shortly thereafter showed up at their two locations in New York. And there were lines down the block. I think they were saying that by the end of the weekend, that weekend, they had received 25,000 online orders. And they normally, in that time frame, would receive 600 
orders. So like people really did not want the strand to close. And I think you're going to have a similar situation with Shakespeare and Company because it's one of those like book lover meccas. Like if you love books and if you're in Paris, you have to go there. Right. So I think these very vulnerable sort of calls for help are going to be the thing that these famous locations are going to need because normally you don't share if you're a bookstore or if you're a regular store that you're in a bad situation because like your investors don't want that they don't want it to be seen as something going under and devaluing the store so I can get that but at the same time that vulnerability I think is what's causing this to work out for the strand and hopefully for Shakespeare and company because while you want to present this front that like you're a store that you've been here for this long you'll be here forever well that's not the case if your pride gets in the way of you asking for help right as for the strand situation they had an order that really stuck out to them because there was a customer who ordered 197 books that is an insane number of books if you consider the fact that books actually cost money when you buy them yeah that truly is kind of nutty that's a lot a lot a lot of books and this call to action that they kind of put out this letter for help really received a lot of mixed opinion when the strand did it there are some people who just flat out supported the stores because like you're a well-known and well-loved bookstore and we want you to stay but then there were others who blamed the owner walden i think is the last name for fiscal irresponsibility because apparently the owner had bought some amazon stock and then during the time of covid received a ppp loan and then still had to lay off workers so i guess people think because you got that loan you shouldn't have laid anyone off right so like that's the purpose of the loan because it's not something you have to pay back so like what why are you laying off people that you literally got money to pay for right and so i think right now is going to be the time when you need to shop your local independent stores or any bookstore that you'd like to support that maybe something like the strand or shakespeare and company famous I'm, and well-known bookstores i'm gonna try to take you to one of the mom and pops over in fort worth this week too so that that should be fun yeah yeah and i think your money really needs to speak for you now more than it ever has and i know it's really easy to shop amazon and i know it's really easy to shop other bigger bookstores but if you're someone who loves books as much as I do, right. you really have to put your money where your mouth is and buy local independent or, like I said, the famous places you like to stay open right. so that you can actually visit them at some point. And, I mean, we still are having the Black Lives Matter. It's still an issue whether the media wants to present it as one or not. So there are still independent bookstores run by black people that need to be put to the forefront and right. it's one of those times where like i want to help as many independent bookstores as possible but there's only so much money to put where my mouth is so right. if you are picking up books this holiday season coming up since we're now in november and i talk about it without getting dirty looks yeah this holiday season if you're going to be purchasing books for someone i think you really need to avoid 
Amazon, avoid bigger chain retail bookstores, and shop independently. And if you're going to order online, think about doing it sooner rather than later because you do have the whole it takes forever to get packages nowadays. Yeah. So it's something to consider. Yeah, while, while you were talking about a lot of this stuff, I looked up Shakespeare & Co. And they're actually doing some cool things. I don't know if we can buy them here in America, but if you somehow are a listener and you're in Europe, which I don't think we have yet, but if you are... They're doing a pretty cool thing where for 275 euros, they send you three parcels full of books that are recommended by major authors and publishers in different categories. Uh, I don't know that you can pick the category, but it comes with like merch, like a cool tote bag and like some of their personalized stamps and things like that. So if you can afford the 275 euros or in dollars, let's see here, it's trying to change Around 300 something. 318.51 in dollars. I think that's something cool. I might honestly contemplate even doing that for us just because it's one way to kind of help these little bookstores and it's a specialty thing they're doing right now to kind of like save the bookstore right on a bundle which i think is is pretty neat uh, they call it the year of reading. I think that's kind of cool that they just send you three separate parcels throughout Does the year. Does it say how many books are in there, or is it just going to depend on size and weight? S- subscribers this year will receive 12 books selected and introduced by our team of passionate booksellers, inked with the bookshop stamp, which, you know, you can only get if you're there There's in person, yeah. And accompanied by a variety of special Shakespeare & Co. treats and personalizations. Nice. So I think that's kind of a cool thing that they're doing. Um, but again, it's three separate parcels. So they'll mail you one. It's saying before Christmas. And then the other ones would come accordingly right. later on. Definitely exists in Europe. I didn't look far enough into it to figure out if it can be done in the States. But I think that would be a cool gift to a book lover of the world. And you can help keep a really crucial, fun bookstore afloat in yeah. Paris. So that'll be my little plug, I guess. No. But saving bookstores is important. And as far as celebrity book news, because I've had some, like, I don't know how many weeks running, Dolly Parton's book, Dolly Parton's Song Teller, My Life in Lyrics, is coming out on November 17th. I just heard about it yesterday. I don't know if it's a celebrity thing, but I keep finding out things, like, right before or right after they happen. Right. But in the book, she's going to explore all of her famous songs and also shares previously unpublished photos from her personal but also like work lives so if you're a dolly parton fan or if you know a dolly parton fan this might be for you i've never really been too interested in her but i also know that as far as her philanthropic side she does this thing where she'll send children books for free if you sign up through a website that she has okay so i mean i like her as a person for doing that trying to make sure kids are getting into reading i agree that's Um, important but i guess this book is about like what led to her writing certain songs and where it supposedly came from and all of this stuff so if you like her music that's definitely for you right i don't know that i'm really a dolly parton fan but i think supporting somebody that does give back to the community and helping kids have access to books i think is a super important thing well and the philanthropic on a company or nonprofit, whatever it is that she does this with ships books all over the u.s for children to have so i think if you're expecting a child or if you have someone within the age range it's definitely something you should do yeah because free books who doesn't want that right i think the age range is like 
one to five or something like that. So obviously you'd have to read to the kid until the kid learns how to read. But right. still something to consider if you like books and if you want your children to also like books. True. But that has nothing to do with her book. That's just something I know about her. Yeah. And the author of the Witcher novels, Andre Sapkowski, I think is how you say that last name, mm-hmm. has come out with a new series. Technically, it came out before the Witcher show became a thing and it became big over here, but it's just now being translated for English readers. And I think it's because it is a historical fantasy series and that's a harder sale than this grumpy guy goes and kills monsters. So the Tower of Fools, which is the first novel in the historical fantasy series, is about the Hussite Wars. With a magical twist. I don't know about those wars. Neither do I, but he does. Yeah. And the book was originally published in Polish back in 2002 and was released in English in October. So it is available now. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously his agent is trying to capitalize on the success of The Witcher, but translations take a decent amount of time. So I feel like it could have been in the works as long as The Witcher show was in the works. Right. So... If you like his writing, then this is probably something for you. I haven't picked up any of the Witcher novels because I've heard that the writing style can be hard to get into as an English speaker. And I don't know if it's because the time frame jumps around like it does in the show or if it's because more along the lines of the translation makes it hard to read. Yeah. Who knows? Translations are never fun, to say the least. I mean... I definitely think I should be reading more translated work, but I also feel like it's hard because you'll never fully 100% grasp something the way that they want you to because it is translated and you don't speak the language. I think even if you spoke Polish as a second language, you still wouldn't fully understand the context of everything. Even if you became fluent, I, I don't know, it being a second language kind of creates some sort of barrier there. Yeah. And then... What I consider to be the biggest news of the week, but I saved it for last because, ha ha ha, I'm not a news organization, I don't have to put it first. (laughs) Netflix has greenlit an eight-episode TV show adaptation for V. Schwab's short story, First Kill, which was first published in the anthology Vampires Never Get Old, Tales with Fresh Bite, that came out in late September. I read it in October. That was my favorite story in the anthology, so I'm really not surprised. And the story is about a vampire who is about to do her first kill, obviously. That's why it's called First Kill. (laughs) But everything kind of goes a bit sideways, and so there's some twist at the end that I'm not going to explain, obviously. But it is a... YA lesbian vampire story that will get expanded on the TV show because it is a short story. So, like, if you just did the short story, it would not be eight episodes. Okay. So, I'm sure it's going to be expanded, but the author, Schwab, will be the executive producer and writer for the show. So, she is going to be the one who's fleshing out the details of the short story. So, I think that's great. It's important, I think, to keep the author involved with a lot of those processes, especially in those roles, because otherwise you lose details that you don't want to. Right. And I think it's a big deal when you're trying to expand on a story, because the short story would only be maybe an episode 
maybe two if you stretched it out really thin. Right. And so, like, you have to find ways to build on it. And if you're trying to make someone else do it, it's not going to be the same. Right. So that's, like, the big news for the week. There's no anticipated release date. There's no potential cast. We just know that Netflix is saying yes to this show. So I'm really... still exciting, though. I'm really excited for this because I like the story. I think it's going to be good. I'm hoping it will come out at like the very tail end of October next year, but I think that would be a tight time frame to do it, but that would be the perfect time of the year. Yeah. So that's my hope for that. But I'm also hoping that it will lead to her other works being explored as viable options for TV shows and movies because there is a book that I want adapted. You haven't read it. I've read it twice. I want to read it more. So maybe this will be what you read after Harry Potter. Yeah, I, I feel like I've had a lot of recommendations for that since well, this podcast has started. So This one that I'm talking about is Vicious by V. Schwab, and it's sort of like a darker X-Men story is how I would explain it to you to try to get you interested in it. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. I do like X-Men, so that would be uh, and I think there's comparison. There's plenty of action and plenty of short chapters to propel you through the story, so I think you would be fine with reading it. Plus, it's like less than 400 pages, I think. Gotcha. It would definitely be more palatable, I think, for you. Yeah, it would definitely make it more applicable to me and my styles of reading, that's for sure. But that's all the news that I had for this week. I think the V Schwab is very big news. I'm very excited for that. And then I didn't do a tag this week because we were talking about the adaptation of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I have lots to say. And I'm, I want to do like a general like this is wrong, but there are things to say. <laughs> so before we get to the adaptation and discussing that, we'll go ahead and discuss what I've been reading and what I'm reading next. Yeah. So this past week I did a good job. I only read two books. It was like a thousand pages, but it was only two books. Yeah. I read The Castle School for Troubled Girls by Alyssa B. Scheinmel. Yeah. Which I rated 3.25 stars. This is a NetGalley arc for something that releases in March of 2021. And the reason I read it so early is because I thought it was going to be kind of a thriller mystery sort of book. Okay. Because that's what the synopsis makes you think of. But then I read it and it's more like a contemporary and does not at all fit in with October like I thought it was going to. Gotcha. So this is about a girl whose best friend died a few months ago. And so she is acting out because she doesn't know how to deal with her grief. So she's skipping classes, going and visiting his grave late at night, getting tattoos and all the quote-unquote bad girl things. And so her parents sent her away to this castle school for troubled girls. Okay. And there she has classes. She lives in a dorm with 11 other girls. And she gets therapy on a multi-session per week basis. Okay. And in the synopsis, the whole reason I thought this was going to go down the mystery, thriller, horror aspect is that it's 
happening in rural Maine and that this castle school is supposed to be deserted. Nothing is supposed to be anywhere within miles of them. But one night, one of the first nights that she's there, she hears music. So she opens the window to try to figure out where it's coming from because it sounds like it's outside of the castle. And she finds that the lock outside the bars that are holding um, the window in place are broken. And so that she can sneak out at night. And the next night she sneaks out and discovers that there's another castle. And like all of this is in the synopsis. Firstly, castles in Maine, probably not too common. Well, there's a little side story about why there are two castles in Maine and all this stuff. But the part that I just said is all part of the synopsis. So I was like, oh, it could be a 12 dancing princesses retelling there's been a lot of those lately. It could be like this weird, creepy school that I don't know why it's there and something happens, something sinister. And it does sort of lead you down this road where you think something sinister is going to happen for like two thirds of the book. Okay. And then it turns out there's no big mystery. There's no thriller element. It's just you thought there was only one school, but there's also a school for boys. And that's why there's two castles. Yeah. Like that's literally it. So the turn was a little bit of a flop. There was no turn, but I expected a turn. So it turns out it's just a contemporary about a girl dealing with her grief. And like it does discuss mental health and stuff like that. And it does it pretty well. So kudos for that. But don't sell me on something as a mystery, thriller, horror, whatever, and then not give me any mystery, thriller, or horror elements. Right. Like, I want to say that it kind of tried to give me those elements, but then it turned out it was nothing, so it didn't really give me those elements. Like, I just got misled for the first half of the book or whatever. So, I mean, I still rated it 3.25 stars despite the misleading synopsis. So it was still well written. It still gave you something to think about when it comes to grief. Yeah. So I don't know. I think they need to change the synopsis. Like if you change it to like a more contemporary synopsis, explaining what the story might actually be about, and then you have that weird mystery element at the beginning and then it settles towards the end that there's not any mystery element it's really you having trouble dealing with your grief that makes more sense right and then i reread half-blood prince which we've talked about ad nauseum at this point it's just i still am finding things to look at and think about in different ways despite the fact that i've been reading these books since i was 10 years old 21 years later since i first picked up the first book I had new thoughts and new opinions, and I think that's something that can happen with a really well-written book, even if it's by an author that you hate. And so, rereading it this time, there were certain things that, as an adult, I saw that I didn't when I was a kid, despite the fact that I reread this book last year, too. So, I just... The series is so well-written, and it still teaches you lessons about love and compassion and all these other things that I don't associate with the author anymore, but I cannot put these books aside because of her behavior just because the message is still so strong and so good despite the things that she does online. Yeah, she she clearly doesn't 
filter herself out or her ideas and she just blurts out whatever comes to her mind and that is problematic. Well, it's not problematic that she says what's on her mind. What's problematic is what's on her mind. Yeah. And so, you know, there are people that I've talked to who are like, I don't know how you're reading this. I don't know how you're talking about this. I don't know why you're doing this for the podcast. Hey, it's my fault. <laughs> well, um, you I've did. never read them. You did promise me before we got married that you'd read them. Yeah. So, so we're trying someone... to make, make that up clearly. But at the same time, it's so well written and like the messages are still so good that I have to find a way to separate the author from the creation. And a lot of people can't do that. But I find that since it is so polar opposite to what she's saying, that I just kind of throw her out of my mind and accept these as what they are Yeah. and the messages that they teach. Yeah. So I just wanted to clarify that for anyone who still feels that way about us discussing it. Right. And you're fine to feel the way you feel. If you don't think that you want to read the series anymore, then I completely understand. As a human being, you have the right to decide not to do that. And by no means are we saying that you 100% need to read it. We just still enjoy the lessons that are good coming from it versus the nonsense that's spewing out of J.K. Rowling's mouth. So, And I think the thing for me is I've read this I don't know how many times at this point, and I'm still finding things that are connecting after that many rereads, and it's like, how can I not continue to enjoy the series when it's so well written? Right. If the messages in the story were bad, then yeah, I wouldn't have even reread them the first time. But no, they're not. They're, yeah, they're they're good life lessons, and and this is really well written, and so I'm still enjoying it. Right. And I've liked listening to your theories, even when I've had to try to put on a poker face because you said something that's so far off the mark. Yeah, it's like, wow, you really think that? Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or when you get something right, and I really have to try to just... Keep your mouth shut so that I don't think that I'm, like, nailing it right then. Yeah, that's hard for me. (laughs) I could imagine it's not easy, that's for sure. But off that soapbox. Moving on to what I'm reading next, I have two contemporary novels that I'm going to try to read in the next week. The first being Dash and Lily's Book of Dares by Rachel Cohn and David Leviathan. This is a backlist novel from 2010, so it's a decade old, and I've never wanted to read this because I just didn't like the synopsis or whatever, Yeah. but I saw the Netflix trailer for this movie. And now I'm like, well, I have to read it before I watch it because I'm definitely watching it. Right. Because it looks like a Christmas movie. Okay. It happens starting in The Strand, that bookstore we mentioned before. Yeah. And it's basically this guy and this girl sort of leave each other a bunch of clues and dares to complete during the holiday season. Yeah. And I like that as an idea. It's just, it looks so much more Christmassy in the movie, so now I have to read it before I watch the movie. Makes sense. And it's actually pretty short. It's less than 300 pages, so it should be a quick read. And I'm going to follow it up with Chasing Lucky by Jen Bennett. This is a new release that technically comes out November 10th, but I got it on the 30th, so I don't know how I got it almost two weeks early. Not gonna complain. (laughs) It's about a girl and her mother who don't really have any roots. They travel city to city. 
and they have to settle down for a little bit because they inherit a bookstore yeah. and they have to run it while they figure out what they're going to do with it and all this stuff. And there's a boy at some point. And that's all I want to know. Yeah. I've read a lot by Jen Bennett. And so she's pretty much an auto buy for me. And bookstores are my jam, obviously. You don't say. As we talked about like a third of our news this week with bookstore news. Right. And I think that one's a little over 400 pages, so it's way down on page count than normal. Normally, I read about 1,000 pages a week. There's only going to be about six-something. Okay. So, pretty pretty slow reading week for me, but it's that time of year where I really don't want to push myself because I have this problem, especially during the holidays, of being able to get everything done. Right. And so, I'm not going to try to push it. I can understand that. And then I think I will also be watching the Dash and Lily's Book of Dares movie when it comes out in nine days. So I won't discuss it next week, but probably the week after. Makes sense. As for what you've been doing, you've been watching Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Also prepping to read Deathly Hollows. We still have to figure out how we're going to break that monstrosity up into movies and books. I already know how I'm going to break it up because... The first movie stops at a certain point, so you should probably stop reading by that point. Okay. Uh, and then we'll have you finish the book and we'll watch the last movie. And then I tried to start reading The Old Guard, but my life, when it comes to work-life balance, got a little screwball-y, to say the least. Yeah, you have a really bad job of it during November and December of maintaining any sort of work-life balance. This is going to be weird. For the say, next two months. To say the least, yeah. It's it's going to get more and more complicated for me to stay up on podcast things, which really sucks because you already have a lot of, I think of it, on your plate. But it's going to be on, on you mostly. And, well, and I'll do my reading and that'll be about it. I think you're going to have trouble getting all your reading in. But I think it'll be good to have a movie to watch in between for you. Oh, without a doubt. That'll help my cause a little bit. But today, obviously, we were discussing the comparisons of the book to movie adaptation, which we know is a hot mess. Yeah. Overall, the main thing I want to say about the book to movie adaptation is it was fun. Yeah. It was just wrong. Yeah. And, like, I'll never love this as much as I love, like, the first movie or whatever because it's so wrong. But at the same time, the humor in the movie is, like, exactly my kind of humor. So I still enjoy the movie when I watch it, even if it is that far off. Right. Like, again, the movie was, I think, good, but when it comes to adaptation, it might as well have been a whole other story almost. Like, you had the key plot points, but it was just, like, that is moments in the entire movie, and that's it. You're losing a lot of the thematic elements, I think, and you're also losing, like, the overall feel because, like, things are just getting darker and darker and darker for Harry in book six, culminating with Snape killing Dumbledore and, like, that being the darkest moment in the series as a whole so far. Wait, what? I'm just kidding. (laughs) We've already discussed the book. So... With all this humor laid into the movie, you lose that sense of just, like, impending doom the whole way through. And I can kind of say that I want to forgive it, but I can never actually forgive it for that. Because I like the humor, but it just, it throws everything off so much. Yeah. And the first major thing that 
bothered me and there's just something that I had to think about because I didn't take any notes first of all. I tried not to take notes this time. And then also I watched the movie with you before I even started the book and so like things are a little more screwball-y than normal in my head. But the first thing that really threw me off is you don't get this scene with the prime minister at all and like that is one of my favorite openings for (laughs) harry potter for a harry potter book because like you get this muggle who you know he's a politician i don't like politicians whatever but he's just trying to do his dang job and then the muggle world gets infected with all this magical crap which you partially see in the movie it just like it jumped to like one or two things that existed in the book but like the placement of it timetable wise was also incorrect well i mean for me the thing that i enjoyed about the prime minister scene in the book was you have fudge telling him you'll probably never see me but i just had to formally introduce myself so that you know that the wizarding world's out here and i have to tell you that we exist but then he just keeps showing up because crap keeps happening yeah. And I like seeing all of that fall into his lap and how he has to continue doing his job as a muggle prime minister, but then also deal with Fudge coming in and telling him all this crazy crap that he can't even deal with. He just has to sit there and be like, oh, you're the reason that bridge broke? Well, I can't do anything about it. Right. It was magic. So what was I supposed to do to stop it? Yeah. Right. And they do show a bridge breaking in the movie, but it's completely off from what I pictured because it was said in the book, I believe, as the bridge broke right in two and they don't know how it happened. The engineers can't explain it and it's only a 10-year-old bridge. This one, they like made it do all this crazy stuff in the movie because yeah, it it's more like it cinematic like or going through like a weird like earthquake wave moment where it was just kind of like right and people were able to get off the bridge for the most part like I, in the movie you don't see anybody actually die from the bridge right. collapsing and you miss like the giants Uh, in the West Country and all this other stuff that's supposed to have happened and the murders that were talked about in the Muggle News. So, like, it's, I don't know, it's not that big of a deal, but it is world building and it is something that I think, even if you don't include, like, all the tiny things that happened that both the Prime Minister and the Minister of Magic have to deal with, but just include that scene where he gets introduced to Rufus Scrimger. I think that would have added to I, the story. I agree. I think it would More have been, so than the bridge. It could have been like a 10-minute scene, you know, and it would have been worthwhile of an addition to it. I also really would have enjoyed finding out that Kingsley had to be the secretary for the prime minister as his protection. Yes. And he gets all haughty about, like, well, you can't just blah, 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 blah. But he's so happy with how Kingsley's performed because he gets twice as much work done. Right. So that would have been funny to add there. Yeah, there's a reason. (laughs) Also, you don't see the Dursleys, which, I mean, the scene in the movie while, or the scene in the book, while funny, isn't really necessary overall for the plot. But I would have liked to see them get hit over the head with glasses of mead. That would have been funny. It would have been very priceless. And the thing that they replaced it with, with him being in a muggle shop in the underground or whatever, kind of bothered me. a, A good scene for a movie, but the comparison was far off from what it should have been. 
Well, it bothers me for a few reasons. One, you're reading a magical newspaper in front of muggles. Like, what are you effing doing? Right. Two, you have Dumbledore say that he will have Harry's belongings and his owl and owl cage at the Weasleys waiting for him. Yeah. But how did you go in while the Dursleys were gone or something? How did you get Harry's stuff? Yeah. You can't just make it appear out of nowhere without getting it. I don't understand. The magic doesn't work that way is my problem here. And a weird thought that came to my mind, at least with it in, in the movie and from the book connotations, and this might just be a dumb feeling or maybe it's something that other people have talked about. The idea that that house is so protected. Mm-hmm. Like, I, obviously you can apparate within it because you see uh, the house elf do that. Technically, you can't apparate inside of Harry's home. The house elves have a different type of magic that can be used. See, that's where I was kind of stuck. I'm like, I was wondering if it was different because they've never seen anybody else apparate there. It's, only outside of it. It's similar to Hogwarts in that the house elves can move throughout Hogwarts however they have to with magic but wizards and witches cannot apparate inside of Hogwarts. And that's kind of what I figured was the case with Harry's Similar house. That, so yeah. uh, it, you couldn't just have Dumbledore apparate into the house mm-hmm. and then send all of his things away. Yeah. You know, it's just it not just, an option. The logic doesn't work. Right. With the canon, obviously. And, you know, I like the idea that, you know, Harry's had a rough five years. He wants to go to a coffee shop and flirt with a waitress or whatever. You do you, You Harry. do you, exactly right. But, like, the newspaper thing bothered me, like, and Dumbledore just appearing there bothered me. Because yeah. I feel like he would care more about, like, security and secrecy. One would think. And, of course, the Diagon Alley was wrong. But I did like how they did the shop with uh, friend George. Yeah. I thought that was a lot of fun. I think they covered it pretty well, like what what you would have expected. But at the same time, it felt like the scene was shorter than it should have been. Well, I think what you're missing is the Madame Malkin's shop scene. Mm -hmm. And I think that lays a lot of the foundation for Harry's logic leaps throughout the book. Yeah. Because you see Malfoy flinch when she goes to roll up his robes on the left side and all this other stuff. So I think it gives Harry more credibility than I think the movie does. I think in the movie he's just saying this because he hates Draco and is making assumptions that make no sense. Right. Whereas in the book you have more of a layer of foundation for it. Yeah. And I mean... You get small things that are missing in that scene, too. Like, they're not using the extendable ears to try to figure out what Draco's doing. And they're, like, peering over the rooftop. and then... Which is weird. How'd you get on the roof? Yeah. And then, like, Hermione's not being completely and totally obvious trying to figure out what Draco was doing. Yeah. So, they're smaller things, but I think if you're paying attention between the two, you definitely notice that for sure. Well, and then Draco's supposed to be there by himself instead of like having an army of people with him, which right, was like, super weird. I don't know why he would have that many people with him when there's supposedly a secret mission. Right, like, exactly. Like you don't want to draw attention to yourself with a bunch of Death Eaters following you around. Well, and you know, you had Bellatrix question if Narcissa should even be telling Severus and... If that's the case, why is he having, like, five or six people follow him into the shop? Right. Like, I could understand, like, Narcissa telling Bellatrix about it or Bellatrix being there to be part of the decision-making process. Right. Because she's more or less 
Voldemort's like top dog now. Since well, and she's also Malfoy's locked up. She's also related to Narcissa, so yeah. it would make sense. And then you get them onto the Hogwarts Express. No Slughorn meal on the train at all. And for some reason, the compartment that Harry goes into to overhear what they're saying... Isn't a private compartment? Is just a giant, like, full-length compartment. Yeah. yeah. And so... I thought that was really weird. Like, I don't think Draco would be saying that stuff out in the open. Right, with that many people within earshot. And, like, he tells Harry that you didn't hear anything I was worried about you hearing, but I don't feel like he would be saying that in front of that many people. Yeah, yeah, it was, that was a weird scene. I didn't really, like, everything on the train was annoying, like, for the most part. Like, Well, you don't even have Tonks who finds Harry. It ends up being Luna. I love Luna. I love seeing more scenes with Luna, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But that's not who was supposed to find him. Right. And I think that speaks to how Tonks is just kind of, her whole storyline is plucked from the book to make this movie adaptation because there's a reason she's supposed to be the one who finds him. Like, he's supposed to see her looking different, but also her um, her Patronus is different form now than it was before. So, like, you don't get the things that hint at her depression and heartbreak and all this stuff. Yeah. And so it's like Tonks doesn't even really exist anymore. Yeah, on top of that, like, the like Snape is obviously there when he arrives back up there, but, like, he walks back with... Luna? Luna, which is just... It's weird. Like, it's it's just weird. Like, it's not... Just because of how different it is from the book, like, that whole scene just doesn't really add up in my head that well. Like, well, and in the movie, you've got, like, a crowd of people who are getting their stuff searched and, like, Snape's watching over it. And yeah. it's just, it's so weird and I don't know why they would do that. Right. I mean, maybe they're trying to go for, like, a show-don't-tell thing about the shrunken head in Crab's luggage. But, like, really, that's not that big of a deal. You could just say that part. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. It's so hard to talk about this movie because so much is wrong. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, a couple of employees that work with me and coworkers, we we got into a little bit of a tangent about like how we're doing these adaptation to movie conversations. And basically they're like, this one is the worst and you're going to hate it. And I'm like, well, I, I already watched it. So yeah, you're right. I hate it. And Mm -hmm. it's a a bad adaptation. Like again, like my argument was the movie was good, but God, there was just a mess of stuff. Yeah. It's hard because I love this series so much and it's messed up so badly. On top of that, I honestly, like, you told me that this wouldn't be one of my favorite books, but I actually really, really enjoyed this book. So, like, it's hard to see the adaptation get so screwed. Well, like, when I read it again this past week, I had such a hard time with the scene where Dumbledore is drinking the potion. Like, I almost cried a few times. I've never cried reading that scene. And, like, I'm not a big fan of Dumbledore. And so, like, I don't know what that was. <laughs> Came out of nowhere. And so, like, I'm more attached to this book than I think I thought I was. Yeah. And so, like, that adaptation is just a mess. Dare we talk about, like, where they apparated as well in that scene? They're supposed to be on the cliff top, not across, like, an overhang. No, rereading it, they were on a rock. They weren't on the cliff top. I thought they had to walk in from the town, but I might be wrong. It's been two and a half weeks since I've read it and it's the first time I've read it so well I read it more recently than you and you've read it more often than I 
And so, yeah, no, they are supposed to be on a rock. They're not supposed to be on the clifftop. That's good, at least. But that's way further down in the... The book. There's still a lot of mess in between. Yes. Where did you want to start after them arriving? Haggard was there for the meal. He wasn't supposed to be, yeah. At all. What else? When you are missing the scene where the students are trying to figure out their schedules with McGonagall, you instead just have Harry and Ron, like, watching all the little first years in a hallway. Race around all their classes. And so McGonagall confronts them and is like, don't you have a class to get to? And then they realize they can take potions. Yeah. And it was funny in the movie watching them scramble over, like, the good textbook or whatever, the newer version, but that's not how it happens. Yeah, Slughorn basically grabs two books and then just gives them to him and goes, all right, we're doing this. By the way, speaking of potions and Slughorn, when I read the book, I realized something that I hadn't realized before. So, at one point in time, they're discussing how Ron would like to have liquid luck on hand because they're about to go on this big adventure and they're going to need it. So Harry goes to look at it and he's like, no, it's got a lot of work and it's way too complicated and we can never make it. Plus it has to stew for six months. Yeah. Question is then if Harry in July goes to help Dumbledore get Slughorn to accept the staff position, how did he have it on the first day of class in order to give someone some liquid luck? He's probably already making it somewhere. That's the only plausible explanation. Yeah. Because or otherwise it, it possibly otherwise it doesn't make sense. Well, he had that in the class. He had a little cauldron of it simmering, and that's how you saw the gold potion leaping out. Yeah. Of the cauldron. In the book. So yeah. it doesn't make sense unless he was already brewing it. Literally, that's the only way that makes sense. Yeah. Because in the movie, he he already had just the vial of it sitting in his pocket, more or less. Yeah, and in the book, you have the cauldron of it over a flame. Yeah. So, I had never realized that before. Yeah. So, that was weird. Some would say that's like a continuity error. Yeah. I feel like I noticed it, but I wouldn't have realized the complication of it, I guess. Yeah. As quickly as yourself. But see, how many times have I read that book on just realizing stuff? 80 million times. But back to the book to movie adaptation. (laughs) So that whole scene kind of bothers me because there are way too many students in that class. There were supposed to be 12. It seemed like it was a normal class size. Yeah. And then to a degree, I like the way that Hermione is sort of like explaining Amortentia and all this other stuff. But as a whole, I don't like any of the scenes really that are happening in that class. Yeah. I wish we could see more of Slughorn doting on Harry and talking about how good he is at potions and all this other stuff. Because I think that would have built up the tension between him and Hermione, but I also think that it helps Harry get the memory eventually. Because this is one of his favorite students and all this other stuff. Yeah, there was a lot of character development that didn't exist in the movie, to say the least. And that was one of the many. The other one that really drove me crazy was really like they overly emphasize lavender falling in love with ron you didn't see it that much in the book like you saw them as a couple a lot but you didn't see their like her budding love for ron by any means like it really wasn't non-existent and then we go into like Ginny and dean like you saw a lot of their relationship in the book and in the movie you really didn't yeah Well, I also think they did Jenny a little dirty in the movie because, like, she's so weird and, like, awkward in the movie in a way that she's not 
in the books. She's more, like, settled into herself as a character in the books. Yeah. And, you know, she might still like Harry, but she's, like, living her life, doing her thing, dating and playing Quidditch and getting ready for owls. And it's not all about, like, that one weird moment where she's, like, tying his shoe at some point and then sitting next to him on the couch at Christmas and, like, being all awkward and trying to feed him. Yeah. And it's like, they do the Weasleys pretty dirty in these movies, but like Jenny, that's like especially bad. Because she's almost like an extension of Fred and George in that she's like a jokester and a prankster, but also she's like this like strong and independent person and you really don't get that in the movies. Yeah, I can agree with that. And then honestly, one of my favorite scenes, I think it's probably one of the more screwed up adaptations, which Weird. is Luna and Harry at the Christmas party. I do like that he invites Luna. I enjoyed the adaptation of that scene. I feel like that w- was accurate enough to get the point across. Yeah. But the rest of it was just like Luna was not there almost. It's like she wasn't even there and Harry was by himself the way they did it in the movie. Right. There is a moment in the book where Harry is focused on another conversation while Luna is talking to Trelawney. Yeah. But like overall they're together as friends. Yeah. And just the movie's like F that. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not a huge fan of that. And the Quidditch trials were tryouts where Cormac gets confunded by Hermione. That was okay. Like pretty, pretty accurate. Moderately accurate. The difference was it was supposed to be one of them going up at a time taking turns versus an actual scrimmage is the way the book made it seem. Well, and Harry was purposefully doing all the other positions first in order to try to get everyone cleared out before Ron's practice because yeah. he's trying to be a good friend. And you don't really see that. And At all. you don't see Cormac's, like, freak out on Harry. Yeah. And, like, that was supposed to be, like, Hermione trying to justify what she did after the fact. It was like, well, you wouldn't have wanted him on the team anyway because look how he reacted. He, yeah. He was so angry. So, not a fan of that. You also didn't see Cormac really in net, well... In hoop. In hoop anywhere in the movie either. So, it's just kind of, I don't know. It was a mess in Quidditch adaptation, shy of that one scene, for the most part. Like, I think it was acceptable for them to do it as a scrimmage versus, like, actual tryouts. But at the same time, like, yeah, you missed the the development of Harry and Ron's friendship and being like, everybody else is going to be gone. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And that, that bothered me. I think kind of like you a little bit. Yeah. And, of course, you miss a lot of, like, classroom scenes. And my favorite part of Harry Potter got left out. Which was? When Harry is practicing nonverbal spells in Snape's classroom. And Snape confronts him. And then uses a verbal spell. And then Harry's trying to talk to him. And he's not calling him professor. And he's not calling him sir. Not giving him any respect. And then... Snape jumps on him and he's like, don't you mean yes, sir? And he said, there's no need to call me sir, professor. And it's like, oh, crap. And like, Sassy Harry didn't really exist so much in the movie. It is like one of my favorite things about Harry in the books is his sass (laughs) when he's just had enough and whatever. Right. But you don't get it in the movie. Right. Yeah, it was definitely lackluster for sure. It's kind of sad. Yeah. And... You know, eventually Harry has his meetings with Dumbledore and they're discussing what his lessons are for 
discussing Tom Riddle and all of that. But you're actually missing a lot of the scenes where Harry's going into these memories. You're missing pretty much all of the gaunt memories. They don't have those in the movie. Yeah. So you don't really get the background of really 100% where Voldemort's family line comes from and like the history of all these things that came into play to even make his birth exist. Well, you're also missing the part where he kills his dad and grandparents and then makes his uncle take the fall for it. Yeah. I think that's kind of a big deal that they keep that out. You also miss the part where you see Tom Riddle going to Hepzibah Smith's house and looking at her trinkets and, like, coveting them. Yeah, because you don't know what these other things even are. And, like, they may or may not be horcruxes, but you have no idea what they are. You have no idea why they could be important. Well, and even where to begin to look for them because of that. Like, obviously, Hepzibah doesn't have them anymore, but, like, at least if you know what you're actually looking for is beyond helpful, you know, to try to actually find these things, obviously. Yeah. So, all of that's kind of annoying. I think, though, the most annoying part for me... Okay. ...is that they do Christmas wrong. Yeah. So, the part that I don't like is that weird insert of Jenny trying to feed Harry for some freaking reason, being awkward and weird. But then you're also missing the part where everyone's just sort of off in their own section, doing their own thing while listening to this program that Molly makes them listen to. But then the biggest part for me is you don't get Rufus Scrimger coming with Percy and trying to get Harry on their side as their, like, big symbol of hope. And instead, you've got Bellatrix and Fenrir coming and attacking the burrow for some reason yeah it's obviously a thing that doesn't happen at all in the book i think it was again another scene really utilized to make the movie seem darker than it should like there's like just another form of torment where the burrow is burning down i think it's more about the lack of action in the movie or in the book leading up to a very not action-filled movie because you're focused more in this book about trying to figure out what Voldemort is doing, why he's doing it, how he's doing it, by going through these memories and having these lessons with Dumbledore. So you're not getting those high-impact, like, cinematic scenes. And I feel like they threw that in there just for some action. But they could have done the proper scene where the action should have been, which is, like, coming down from the astronomy tower, the duels in the halls of Hogwarts, I feel like would have been... would have been a lot better placement for the action scenes. And you could have had the scene with Bill in the medical wing and all the things that like actually matter to the plot growth Yeah, that you don't get at all in the movie. Mm. Like you get the one scene of Harry trying to shoot spells at Snape and it's just like, cool. What about Hagrid's house being lit on fire? Where a house being lit on fire actually happens yeah. in the book there. like And Hagrid has to go in and get Fang. Right, and, and then leaves Harry out. by himself. Yeah, right. Well, he ends up meeting up with Harry after Snape's gone. Yeah. yeah. It's just like they used the same ideas, but just placed them in really weird places at the end of the movie. And if they wanted action, shoot, that would have been it. 
like after you see the main character die, you want action. You want some type of response. And what you get is like not even a taste yeah. of what actually happened. And so like, I, I don't know to seem so outraged, but really like I am. Like, yeah. Well, you're, you're missing the actual like battle that happens. So you're missing Harry giving them the map before they leave and Harry giving them his leftover lucky potion. And you're missing just like them preparing for battle. And then the whole battle itself is just that confrontation on the astronomy tower that pissed me off so much this time when I watched it. I think as the movies were coming out, this didn't bother me. But now that I've really only read the books for years and I haven't watched the movie in a long time, it just made me so mad because Dumbledore is supposed to use the body bind spell on Harry so that Harry is stuck, he can't do anything to help, and that gives Draco the split second to disarm Dumbledore. Yeah, it makes more error as it makes Dumbledore seem like he isn't strong at all. And this is the moment that I need you to remember going into book seven because it's important, and it doesn't happen in this movie. And instead, Harry is hiding in that little weird section under the stairs. Right. And Snape comes up to him, and holds up a finger to his lips like shh and that whole thing happens with Snape killing Dumbledore. It just irritates me because it instead of having Harry where he does no control over what's going on, he absolutely could have stopped Snape. And because again, the lack of plot points and plot building that occurred, you really didn't see Harry's distrust for Snape really exist that much necessarily in this No more movie. than normal, yeah. Yeah. Well and you speak to Harry's control, and I think this is part of what pisses me off so much because it goes against Harry as a character for him to just sit there and, and watch. watch this happen right. when he has the power to do something. Yeah. That has never been Harry as a character. And as is discussed in the book later on, or I guess it happened earlier, this discussion, Harry has to do something. Like, that's just who his character is. Like, the reason that Harry has to kill Voldemort is because that's who he is as a person yeah. based on how he grew up and what happened to his parents. Right. So he could never just hide and watch Dumbledore get killed if he had the power to do anything else. Right. Like you, the amount of times you see Harry in the movies being more or less like an aggressor in reaction to a lot of things. It's, it's crazy that in the movie that this particular movie anyways, they make him such a sissy at the end. Like, I would almost describe it as that because, like, he literally is just... He knows something bad's about to happen to Dumbledore. But in the movie, he's just like, oh, well. Whereas in the book, it's like, I can't believe this just happened. I had no ability to do anything. I'm so frustrated and angry. And you just have him show the anger out of something that he could have done something about. And it's like, I don't like that. I think in the movie, they tried to emphasize when Dumbledore says you must do whatever I say if you're going to come with me. And he told Harry to hide, and so that's why he did. But I think even if he gave his word to Dumbledore, in a life-or-death situation, he would break his word to try to protect Dumbledore. If he had if the he ability. Had the power. Yeah. So that really pisses me off. I can agree. Now, jumping kind of backwards in <laughs> the movie, because we're all over the place. Yay, us. The, so in the book, 
they do travel to the cliffside and land on a rock, technically sort of like in the sea, like next to where they're trying to go. Yeah. And they go into the water to get there. And then, you know, all of that is fine. They have like conversation about Dumbledore giving his blood and all of that. But really, I don't know. Something about the movie is not as sinister as the book was. Yeah. And I, I can't pinpoint why. And I think it might just be as they're going along and doing these things and Dumbledore is explaining everything as they're going, you don't have that in the movie. And I think in the book that actually adds something to the story to make it feel sinister. Right. And I feel like the Inferi are kind of more of a pressing issue from the moment Harry notices them Yeah. until they're out in the book rather than in the movie when it's really only an issue when he gets the water out of the lake yeah and like that is the only moment they actually attack in the book in the book but harry discusses after he sees the inferus in the lake that he feels like death and the dark and the unknown is something to be afraid of versus dumbledore explaining that he thinks that these aren't things to be scared of and so like harry's fear of this and like impending doom sort of hits you as a reader versus in the movie you don't really get that right i can agree with that i feel like for the most part the scene adaptation was okay that was just the missing link yeah of course at the end you don't get dumbledore's funeral you just have harry Discussing with Hermione and Ron. About what's next. About what's coming up. You don't see Harry break up with Jenny either. Yeah. That's missing. Yeah. Which is sad because you, well, let's be honest, you don't really see much of Harry and Jenny's relationship, period. Right. Um, and I was, especially miss the whole tattoo conversation. Yeah. But yeah, the breakup where Jenny's like, I'm grown enough to understand why you want to do this. Like you it's miss. for some stupid noble reason, isn't it? Yeah. And you, it, and it's just an opportunity that I think when it comes to character development with Jenny and Harry, again, you're missing a point. And like, don't get me wrong. I don't expect every plot point of a book to be put into a movie. There's just not enough time. Well, as I've seen discussed online, it's not that I want every single plot point to happen. I get upset when you change thematic elements yeah. or like major points in the story. Yeah. I don't mind that every tiny detail isn't in the movie. It's when you change the feel of the story. So much. That I have a problem. Right. And like that mostly for me in this happens with Jenny's character, but also the burrow being lit on fire. Yeah. And a lot of the other stuff I can forgive. Like, of course you can't have them go into every single memory that would take forever. But I I can kind of forgive that more than I can the other things that happened in the movie. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at with it, too. I just feel like they're the some of the plot options that they could have chosen to put in the movie, they let out of it. And then they put other things in there that weren't, weren't really as important in it. So I don't know. It just... Like, I they mean, literally were making things up to remove important parts of the movie. I understand that you need to make a movie that makes sense and works with the other movies, and I get that you have to make something that's palatable for people who aren't book fans and whatever. Yeah. It's just, if you like the books, then it's hard to enjoy the movies. Yeah. And, again, it's not because plot points are taken out. It's because they've taken something that you love and cherish and just 
sort of mangled it and just taken what they wanted and left other things and added things to try to make it all make sense as a collective whole this movie series yeah i think that you will enjoy the seventh book i don't know that you will the movies but i've only ever watched the seventh part one and the seventh part two one time okay so that's kind of like never seeing the movies before yeah And like I said earlier, I think what I'll have you do is read up to the point that the first movie stops and then stop you and have you watch the first movie. Yeah. And then read from there to the end and then watch the technically eighth movie. Makes sense. But I'm excited to start the book. Obviously, I'm going to have to put the old guard on hold. But I didn't think you would get it watched just because your schedule has been hectic. Yeah. I was kind of hoping this week that I would have been able to, but obviously we had some things come up in our life that forced us to change those things. So but, uh, I'm excited to do some reading this week. My schedule is hopefully a little more normal. We'll um, see. Yeah. But either way, uh, I think that's everything we have to say about the movie to book adaptation. Well, I could nitpick more if you like, but that just feels unnecessary at this point. Yeah, I, so. I can agree with that. So um, we'll catch you next Tuesday for a sports episode. All the social media will be linked below in the show notes. And we'll catch you next week, guys. Bye. Bye.